and welcome to They Give Us Hope, a podcast slash video cast hosted by Twigs and Co., where Anna and Vicky get to share the stories of people, places, projects, and things that give us hope in our day-to-day life. Uh, these are going to be mostly longer, short-form interviews, anywhere from 35 to 55 minutes long. We're aiming for this thing, but we allow ourselves the freedom to show up and share awesome news for longer. This is the relaunch episode where... We get to interview the incredible, the amazing, the indelible Tanya Woods. She is the driving force behind Project In Kind, which is looking to reshape and change and empower a whole bunch of people to do a whole bunch of cool things. We talk a little bit about the UN 17 uh, SDG, Sustainable Development Goals, not just for developing nations. You can use it to build your business. We're going to talk more about that on March 17th coming up. We have a fireside chat going on. Check out all of the links that are somewhere associated with this video in the description or on our profile, depending on what platform you're watching this on. Uh, thank you for being here with us on this journey. I am Anna Burrell, uh, CEO and visionary in chief here at Twigs & Co. And I am humbled every day to work with the amazing people, yourself included. And if you want to get involved with us and get involved with what we're doing, uh, just reach out to myself or my amazing business partner, Vicki Carey Davis, who's going to be on episodes or who already is on episodes of this podcast as well. Um, always reach out. Come shape radical collaboration with us. We can do cool things together. And enjoy this episode with the, I already said it, I'll say it again, amazing Tanya Woods, because it's super dope uh, that we have people like this in our crowd. And we are just, oh my God. (sighs) Humbled. Thank you for being here. Um, Leave a comment, interact, all the things I'm supposed to say because social media is a whole thing. Have a good one. Hello, this is Anna, two of the four thumbs for Twigs & Co. And I'm here with Tanya Woods. Um, So check out her LinkedIn. It's going to be in the show notes description. However, Tanya, I have a question for you. So first off, of all of your current professional titles, which three (laughs) would you say are your favorite or that you spend the most time doing? Oh, um, that's tricky. You're asking me to pick my favorite children. (laughs) <laughs> or the ones that take the most time. I won't ask uh, you to specify. <laughs> and yeah, fair enough. I spend a lot of time uh, really focusing on Project In Kind and wanting to make sure that we're advancing the movement toward broadened and inclusive giving and in-kind resources being a really significant piece of that. And so that's what I'm, I'm obviously very passionate about that. Um, I spend a fair amount of time working on Bitcoin mining and crypto and blockchain things with HUD8. And, um, and then I also, I spend a, scattered amounts of time on other advising roles, um, but very passionate about each of them differently. So <laughs> I'm going to avoid picking my third because all the rest <laughs> are my third. <laughs> okay. So blockchain and in-kind donations. Mm-hmm. Do you mind sharing a little bit of the path about how you got there? No, not at all. Um, so, I mean, my background I'm just a girl uh, from a place in the world, you know, a developed country, very fortunate, just that in and of itself. Um, But I've always been really curious and always like tinkering, but I don't have really like the deep engineering brain. So engineering wasn't really a career path, but I like figuring out problems and I like trying to explain them and and it being able to explain solutions. So I became a lawyer. Um, But I I was the like the lawyer kid that knew they were going to work on creative things. So, you know, early in my career, it was around entertainment and supporting artists and creators and 
then it kind of looped into deeper technology stuff. And, and I worked inside a big, uh, big corporation doing that kind of work. And the work became very mundane day to day, and it just didn't appeal to my entrepreneurial brain. And it, that coincided with uh, a reason for wanting to be more thoughtful for giving and, and a reason for wanting to really look at myself and say, okay, what is, what's my, my little baby thumbprint on this big earth and universe and what's it going to be? And who cares what I do, you know, every day, what's the bigger theme that I want to leave behind? What, if I'm going to make a change um, or try and inspire others to, to think differently about things or, or come and join me in the way I think about things or, you know, help, um, how can I be part of progress of service to, to humanity and service to the community? And that was kind of the precipice moment where I realized, all right, what do I actually have in my, you know, my basket? And, um, and I started to think through those questions. I co-founded a not-for-profit for artists, multidisciplinary creators, wanting to give them access to pro bono legal advice, which is, you know, at the time there were a couple of clinics like that, but really narrowly focused. And then I decided, okay, I'm going to make it for every kind of creator because why not be crazy inclusive with the community? This is like one better over another is not real. Everybody's creative energies need support. So let's help that out. So I so did that. And then um, on the text I realized, you know, a lot of our technology is built by men, frankly, and a certain class of men. I mean, you have to be privileged enough to have the education to inspire you being hired in some of these companies. You know, there are a few tinkers that succeed, but they still don't go far without capital. So, so there's kind of an exclusive class of people that are actually constructing our digital world. And that bothered me a little bit too. And I thought, well, if they're constructing things from their own view, how are how are my experiences going to be reflected in there or everybody else's that don't live in that view and aren't reflected in that worldview. And so I, I helped to co-found a, a not-for-profit to teach women and non-binary people how to make video game architecture um, stories and systems and so on and games and whatnot. And then I'm really proud of that. And then it just started becoming kind of a trend that Inkind was filtering through. And I thought, okay, all these people can actually we can change the story. We can change the narrative of the system. Yeah. I can, can I stop you, you for just a second? Yeah. 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 <laughs> okay. So founding a nonprofit to teach women and non-binary people how to create video game structure. Yeah. L literally where to start with that. Okay. So how, how was that? Why video game structure? Um, well, I think I understand. Yeah, I mean, at the time I was working with, with the games industry as a lawyer. So I think I always took my professional stuff and married it with doing good. Um, you know, I finished my last law degree in Washington, D.C. in 2009. I started the last law degree in 2008. I watched the financial collapse unfold in front of me. The election of Barack Obama happened in front of me. I mean, I stood on the mall the day he was inaugurated. And it was all very real and tangible. And I watched people around me in DC at the time and around the US and around other parts of the world. I mean, fall, just fall hard to, to the ground. And it wasn't their fault. It was the fault of everything else. And, you know, how do you find resiliency in a moment of economic collapse? It's a question we asked at that time. And there were just, there wasn't obvious answers, but there was one and it was, we're gonna have to do things differently. We're going to have to figure out how that fall is caught. And that means we have to have systems and structures in place and they're everywhere. The, the revamp, the upgrade, the, the reimagination was gonna be 
everywhere. It wasn't one little corner that just had to be dealt with because it wasn't a singular cause. It was every corner of every little thing. And so when I um, came back to Canada, I mean, they were paying people not to work in the US at that time. So I graduated and I had no job hope at all. There was like no way I was going to find something. Um, so I ended up coming back to Canada and working for the government as a trade negotiator. But even then I could understand okay, well, the politics, the way politics happens is going to have to shift. We've got to be more empathetic and compassionate. I jumped into, you know, from there into BCE, Bell, which is where I started thinking about the legal clinic for creators. And then I jumped to represent the video game industry. And every jump opened my eyes to new ways we could make subtle changes and yet really empower the start of systemic rethinking and rebuilding. So the games, the games one, girls and non-binary people learning how to build the game technology, the game infrastructure, lets them tell the story differently. How code is arranged gives you a certain result. If I change a line of code, I change the output to the user. If I change the architecture of the game or of the game system or of the way the game or the game system relates to other game or game systems, I can, I can elicit a response that's very different. And if we're only imagining a world through the eyes of hoodie wearing young boys or slightly older hoodie wearing young men, and I'll keep them young at heart included because we love them, you know, that's just one experience. And if those experiences are only in places in the world that are typical for making these kind of structures, then you're also only getting a very narrow world perspective, which isn't relevant at all to the woman living in sub-Saharan Africa or the non-binary person living down the street, wherever they are. Like, so we have to make sure we're architecting our homes for everybody. And it is the case, homes are a great analogy. They're not architected for everybody right now. So a person with disabilities can't just go through a normal door because it's too narrow and it has stairs and the bathroom isn't equipped for a wheelchair. And, you know, you can run this scenario a different way, but, um, that's why I ended up really getting behind that cause. I thought it was critical, critical to get behind it. What kind of results did you see come out of that? Or what, what kind of stories came out of that? The community came together. I mean, this is where InKind proved itself again to be a beautiful ability to just bring value. But we had um, the top domain name registry in Canada, the .ca, uh, Sierra, get behind us and give us the space for teaching. And they had a beautiful space in a very accessible part of the city. And they gave us the classroom, which is the first thing we needed. And then we had a bunch of local developers from great game companies come together and offer their time and their skill to teach their craft to these people. And it was just amazing. And there was no fee for any of this at the time, none at all. And I don't even think there is still. And the community came around to say, yes, we value this change. We want this change to happen. Um, you know, my own, I remember my own uh, running a couple of times just to grab some snacks from the grocery store. And like, I paid for those. I was glad to pay for those. It didn't matter. I mean, it's like, we all need a little bit of substance when we're learning, but it's community that, that makes it all happen. And so we had various players of various sizes come around with their, with their corporate interests to say, yeah, we, we value that change. We value this. And they did. And so we, we graduated, I think over the course of a couple of years, we graduated like 60 or 70 graduates. I mean, these were people 14 years uh, or higher and they just showed up as they were and they were keen and committed. And it was like, they just needed a place to, to do it and, uh, and a community to give them the support and to ask questions to, and it just happened. So yeah, it was pretty exciting. Okay, so with that, and I'm sure like if there had been 
a, a platform that you could have put out a call for snacks, someone would have in kind I'm sure they would have been able to in kind donate some snacks. I know they would. <laughs> <laughs> the snacks are fantastic. Um, so can you do you mind getting a little bit? It, the power of in kind is just massive, but this is a beautiful event that had real systemic um, implications. If for no other reason than you're empowering people to learn that they can structure systems differently and to look at the built world around them differently and ask questions as to why, which is vital. Um, how did that work functionally and structurally to use in-kind giving specifically to be able to move the resources needed to facilitate an event like this? Yeah, I mean, look, we, this, this at that point had been oh gosh, experience number who knows what, um, because we did this with the pro bono legal clinic as well, right? We found coffee shops and spaces to host people to come and meet lawyers. And it wasn't law firm offices because those are really uncomfortable places to go. Like, especially if you're already feeling a little bit like an imposter walking into a fancy law firm office to ask for free help is weird. So, I mean, we set up like, we made deals with local coffee shops and we said, hey, can we have upstairs or could we have the room over there where it's a little more private? And then we, we had the lawyers all agree that they were going to come and, and share their services. But it's about stock taking at the end of the day. It's like, okay, well, what are you trying to achieve and really understanding your goal? And then what do you need to get there? And if I put a rule on you that you can't ask for money, how else could you get there? So you have to think about all the ways that you would have otherwise spent your money to get there. It's the same, it's the same thing, but you can actually get even more creative. You can actually get very strategic about it. So you could say, you know what? I wanna have success here. I want people to come back. I know these people in the city or in the community love this particular kind of cookie. Like, I mean, let's be real fun here. Like they love this kind of cookie. So I just need to go talk to that bakery to see if they wouldn't mind giving, you know, 20 cookies. And then I know I've got literally like the best cookie that I wouldn't even be able to buy anyway, if I had the cash to buy cookies. Um, but I have the best one and they're glad to be part of it. Cause most businesses, frankly, are really glad to be part of something good. Um, they're glad to be part of it. And, and I'll just share their logo fantastic and it works and you know in the case of the law firms we went to the best law firms in the city to the top partners of the firms the managing partners of the firms and we said who do you have on standby who's on the team that can come and help us out and like we didn't go to the bottom of the barrel begging for like could you just please to the brand new grad who wouldn't know anything really maybe maybe knew a little but definitely not everything uh, we went to the top of the top. And then we also though did go across the community to the sole practitioners and so on. Same same case here, we went to the .ca. I mean, that's that's a major, as our Canadian registry, it's like .com, it's the .ca. And we said, you're right here in the city, you're right near the college campuses, you're, you're right in the heart of the city's community. This is a great meeting place and it's highly accessible. People can walk or bike, no problem. They can take a bus, it's easy to get to. Um, how about you? And they were they were stoked by it. They were amazing partners. And it's like, great, take our whole space and we'll get everything set up. And their team came to help and like people got around it. And it, this is how you can do anything with Incline. Frankly, you pick your purpose. So what are you going to achieve? What are you trying to do? And then reverse engineer what you need to get there and who you need. And if you need a space, if you need goods, if you need services, time, expertise, skills, whatever, you you just map out the plan and if you can figure that much out you can you can do it no problem and sometimes with no money not even a dollar <laughs> thinking beyond money you're you're effectively opening up our scope of what we consider currency which is 
Totally. And I mean, I'm not even opening it up as much as I'm reopening it because in the days of barter, you know, there was not current currency as a concept wasn't cash. It was, I'm going to give you this thing to get that thing. Right. And in, in the interesting thing with the way that we've leveraged in kind is we're actually leveraging private for the most part, it's private, although we have done some public partnerships with government, but it's mostly private resources targeting them towards solving public problems. So hunger is is actually a public problem. It's a government problem. Um, it's a whole community problem, but it is typically seen as a government. Governments are supposed to deal with the needs in our community, whether it's through social payments or you know funding programs or funding the charities to do the service to whatever. We rely so heavily on government to take care of these problems, but government doesn't live in the heart of our community. People do, and these, these community-based private organizations do. So what we're doing is we're really grabbing at these big public problems and breaking them apart into bite-sized pieces for community relevancy, and then bringing all the private resources to bear and saying, look, if the whole world's our oyster and we could really take anything we needed to solve a problem, let's just agree on what our problem is and let's pick a time frame and let's think about our plan together and let's just try, let's just do it. And it works in a macro scale and a micro scale. So in picking a problem, um, there a whole, thankfully, there, this is more of a conversation and there are more accounting practices than ever before to figure out what kind of problems to go at and what kind of impact to have and how to measure that. What has been, how have you picked one and what, how did you get there? What are they? Uh, we've picked a few. I mean, we tackled, we wanted to understand food insecurity, food desert concepts, like why in a developed country, capital city, in a, in a, in a place like Canada, why is there hunger? I mean, why is there hunger in this country? Why is there hunger in the U.S.? These are rich nations for all intents and purposes. There's tons of resources around. Why hunger? I mean, this is a basic human need. It's unacceptable, frankly. And that's the position we took. And we thought, okay, well, let's get to it. Like, why is this happening? What are the multiplicities uh, at play here of causes that we can unpack and just start to understand? Is it because people don't know how bad it is? Because people have shame around it, which yes, it's part of it. Is it because the cost of food has gone up so much and why has it gone up? And is that because hydro prices have gone up or wage costs have gone up and they've resulted in retail prices going up? Yes, also actually part of it. Is it because the payments that go to people who are living at the, you know, the bottom economic levels just simply don't cover the cost of food. They only cover housing or they only cover housing plus transport, which is what people need to be a safe and, and warm and sheltered and especially in Ottawa where it's freezing in the winter time, um, but also to get to a job, like you need a place to be and then you need a way to get there. Food, unfortunately, it's although equivalent as a necessity, it's, this is the waiting that's actually happening in our community because the payments for social support are not enough. And then the food banks, well, then they're relied on for food and they're expected to show up. Well, food banks absolutely are not supported enough in across the country. They're desperately undersupported. And why is that? And all of these investigations around food, we had an event at the end of 2017 called Feed the City, Feed Your Soul. And the, the 
design of the event was as important as the event itself. And the design is where we spent literally a year and a half with stakeholders in the community unpacking some of these problems. And, you know, we can speak to them now because we understand them because we took the time to have the dialogue with them and bring them together to co-share dialogue. It wasn't that there isn't enough food. There's enough food. There, it was the reasons I gave you. Um, Hydro was a big one, but also these organizations that are given the task of distributing food, the cost of wages had gone up in the, con in, in the province itself that sets minimum wage. Also, the cost of food had gone up. In some cases, they were lacking supply chains to private providers like farmers and other companies that could help them get the food supply. They might, in some cases, be lacking the place to store all the food properly. So wanting very much to distribute fresh food, but not having big enough fridge to hold it all. Um, or not having the capacity to actually prepare it and then freeze it for meals enough for everybody for later. And like, this is a typically a problem that grocery stores figure out, but you hold a grocery store against a food bank and I can assure you their infrastructure is completely different and it's absolutely inadequate for what it's really being tasked to do. So how do you tell that story as a food bank amongst the noise mm -hmm. of every other charitable story? Because everybody does need help and we we need we, we we discovered we needed to build much stronger bridges between corporations and small businesses and entrepreneurs and specifically even social entrepreneurs with those not-for-profit and charitable organizations serving our community and that was actually the outcome of feed the city feed your soul what we did on the day of feed the city feed your souls we took over canada's national agriculture and food museum uh, which is a big farm in the middle of the city it's huge it's where they test crops they test all kinds of stuff they have an operating farm on that space they're constantly talking about health and nutrition it, it's a government-owned space it's amazing and we brought the, some of the best chefs in the country who feed universities, they feed our National Arts Center, they feed our Governor General. I mean, these are big, big chefs that understand how to feed masses of people. And we equally brought smaller chefs that have restaurants on their own and said, come and here, by the way, we're now gonna give you a challenge. You're constrained to understand the problem facing the person dealing with hunger is actually that they don't have enough electricity, they don't have equipment, they don't have a budget for a lot of ingredients. They generally will unplug. We had found out they were unplugging their appliances in their houses to not drive up their energy bill because they were responsible for that energy bill and didn't want to have bad credit score. So they would not use their stove and they would not oftentimes even use their fridge. Um, they were using cans, which many of them didn't even have can openers, which we found can drives terrible. Um, and they were having to figure out how to use a hot plate and a kettle. And in the shelter, it was a similar type of thing. There would be hot plates, maybe kettles, maybe generally not a full kitchen to be cooking big meals for yourself. Um, and so we gave them those constraints and we said, you've got basically, you've got to make a meal for four for under a dollar. And they did, they did it. They were amazing at it. They, they talked about some of the chefs explained how to forage for food in a city. How do you forage? And it was, it was awesome. Um, some explained how you can soak certain ingredients like dried beans or rice or oats. You can actually soak them. You don't need to plug in anything. If you just plan a little bit ahead, you can do that. And then they're edible and you don't actually need to worry about cooking. So we had some raw food teaching there, which was pretty great. And we had um, companies come in and show how you could take, you know, if you bought, for example, um, frozen fish, a certain kind of frozen fish, specifically looking for volume of the package, you know, the fish itself, it's generally on the, the affordable end of the scale, how you could actually 
have this built into your meal planning if you'd like it you know, for your family of four and still meet the dollar threshold. And so it was, um, it was amazing what they did. We also had, um, we fed the city that day. So the chefs, we did a stone soup. It's a beautiful story about how everybody brings a, one thing and then all together, it's a meal for everybody. Um, we fed the city, we had over, I think, gosh, we had over I think maybe a thousand meals or something provided that day, um, which was wonderful and showed how community could, could solve hunger together. And then we had um, a pitch competition for entrepreneurs to talk about how they might tackle some of the food desert issues. Like for example, creating little greenhouses at the foot of trees that are otherwise just planted along the street and how you could use wrap of a certain kind of plastic that wouldn't harm the environment but would shelter the dogs, keeping the dogs off your lettuce. But you could put lettuce at the base of a tree because it's basically like a, you know, sporadic community gardens. So it was amazing what we did with hunger on that one, but it was all in kind. So with the sporadic community gardens, was that an initiative that was helped along by the city as well? Or was that? No, it was just entrepreneurs that came with their idea because they said, you know, we want people to have healthy, healthy Mm -hmm. diets and healthy food, but the, sidewalk spaces are typically city spaces. Mm-hmm. So as long as the city would agree to allowing this to happen, you could you could do it. And I mean, you could probably just do it until you can't and uh, you know and hope <laughs> that, that it's okay. But but you know, we we did look, we've engaged with our city every time on big things like this because we wanted to make sure they'd be good with it. You know, we we've done other ones around poverty and, and getting kind of essential goods to people and uh mm-hmm. We've done a number of, of quote unquote, we call them experiments because we're trying to see how bold we can get with, you know, in kind, but it's it's honestly never failed us actually. We've always been beyond uh, beyond delighted with what's happened. So you have your events and that's more of a community facing thing, but then you also have the community building side of things, the relationship management, the structures, the trellises in which these beautiful relationships can flourish within. Um, that I believe you've been calling kind village. So Kind Village is the technology piece and it's been the coordinating entity for some time indeed. Yeah. So it's how we started back in 2015. In fact, it was earlier than that, but in 2015, we, we kind of formalized it. Um, and it was reaching out specifically to the partners to say, look, uh, we need bagels for the Sunday event, or, you know, we need a football stadium to have a conversation with international people. Can we have the football team? We got that, of course. Uh, you know, <laughs> we have the buildings so we have free bus passes. Yeah, no, we've, we've honestly never been told no. It's variations of yes, but we've never actually been told no. Uh, and if you have a good enough reason for someone to help you, why not? I mean, why not get crazy bold with what you're asking for you know, and just wait, like people want to help. And I think this is the, this is the reality. One of the level setting things that we've learned over time that we're most excited about is there are very few exceptions and they're generally for very specific reasons, but humans are wired for empathy. We're unique as a species. We have that empathetic muscle. It's, it's something that makes us human. Um, as a as group, we all have values and whether we fully understand at a given moment in time, what our values are, it depends on the society we're in and the times. But I think we can say clearly with COVID, there's a value amongst humans globally that's compassionate. They put compassion and kindness ahead. Um, and we've seen we've seen tremendous giving over the time of COVID, specifically around in kind. But you have to give people a way to help. And we really felt that it's so much work to try and organize those resources as we had done it, keeping track of things, asking for what you need at the right time, having a little bit of an extra hand to get that ask public 
very difficult. So we used Climb Village to make a technology platform idea. Um, and then we've now taken all of this and wrapped it into um, our not-for-profit project in kind. And we've, we've called it a global movement. Uh, we're doing crazy things that we're gonna talk about, I'm sure here, but um, making it bigger and bolder because it can, con conceptually the concepts travel and conceptually this systemic change is widely supported. It's all over the world supported. So we're excited about it. Tell me uh, before we go on about your crazy, I want to hear about all your ideas first off. So that as a lead in, like, area. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, oh, I just lost it. I'm sorry. Don't. Oh, you're talking about the concept being able to travel. Uh, yeah, can you travel. talk more about that? Because I know you have radical inclusivity as one of your values. Um, we are constantly addressing the ideas and the topics of colonialism and these systems that have been built to just disempower people on every level and then how to reframe those systems oh that video i cannot wait to talk more about that video game thing <laughs> that is incredible as a tool um so when you talk about a concept traveling and having vetted vetted a thing an idea to be able to travel do you mind explaining more about that yeah, sure, sure. Um, so when I stumbled into the problem of wanting to help and not finding a way to do that easily, which was how this started to kick off, I had acquired incredible, incredible fortune of skill, not money, skill. Uh, in fact, it was the opposite. The money story was opposite because I was paying off law school debts and a mortgage for the first time. I mean, like, I wish I would both all at the same time, but I didn't. Um, and it's rare that you do actually have wealth in all areas of your life all at the same time. It's, it's very few and far between, probably less than 1% in truth. Um, but trying to get at what would make business come to the table seriously? What would make government come to the table seriously? What would make the community come to the table seriously? Because when it comes to giving, you actually need everybody to kind of be on the same page. Whatever the stakeholders are, whoever they are, they're, if they're factoring into what you're trying to do, they need to work together. And that's something that's not easy to figure out. So we started looking at, I mean, the nerd in me went right away, of course, to academics. And I was like, hey, who's done something like this? This is, I'm sure someone's thought about this, probably an economist, sure enough. Um, we ran into Michael Porter and Mark Kramer's uh, shared value concepts. And it, it tied back to the times that I understood when I was in the US around the, you know, the fall in the crisis, but um, but bigger people have thought about philanthropy. And then at the same time, what was emerging was social impact thinking, the concept of social enterprise in a new way. I mean, co-ops have existed for a lot longer than this idea of a social enterprise. And, and I frankly think they're probably the first true social enterprise, uh, if, if we're honest about it. I, their values are very aligned to social enterprise values and they, they do a lot of sharing and so on, but whatever. Uh, we'll come back to that another time. Uh, but, but for a concept to travel, it needs to be suitable for all kinds of stakeholders, industry players, geopolitical um, ideologies. In our case around philanthropy, you have to consider religious ideologies. You have to consider whole human uh, sets of values and priorities, really wanting to get at how do we bring everybody to the table to create this change? Do they all need to have a problem? And, and this is like flipping Entrepreneur 101 on its head. Why do they all have to feel the pain of a problem? How about they all feel the mojo of the solution? And, and what about that? And what there's other things that motivate people beyond problem solving, getting rich. 
the fact that we can all come together to share in our empathy, the fact that we can all come together and share a value of kindness and giving, that philanthropy and charity has survived centuries, centuries. That's a commonality that I think is worth building on. So we we got I got into this deeply and tried to figure out, okay, how am I going to get companies to come to this? Because legally, corporations, especially in the U.S., they have to maximize shareholder value, and that's translated over time to profit, money. But that's an oversimplification. We're getting lazy here. I always say it's lazy politicking, but we're getting lazy. So so that's not what companies are meant to do. That's one thing they're meant to do, but that's not what companies are meant to do. In the charitable organizational space all over the world, they're meeting needs for the most part. There's a few charities that are little rogue players, but but mostly they're actually there to serve. They're service vehicles. So we have an agreement. And as a traveling concept, that's important. So where's the kind of baseline? So you can travel if you can speak that language. Um, now, what about the people? How do we travel with people in different places, different cultures, different religious backgrounds, different priorities, different economic and socioeconomic considerations? How do we talk in a language that we can all talk together? How can I sit on a street corner with someone who's unfortunately homeless and that's their place for the day? And at the same time, sit with Larry Fink, who's one of the wealthiest men on the planet. How can we have a conversation, the three of us, and what are we talking about? And the commonality between us is we're human. The other commonality between us is we have empathy and compassion. We might have different views, but we can have a conversation. And the hope was if we could figure out that little piece that would satisfy those business naysayers and different religious groups and different cultures and different human priorities, what's the thread that can bring them all together? And what can do it is giving, yes, prioritizing service um, in some way. It might not be cause specific. We might all have a different agreement on what the cause is. It's most important, but, but we're not disagreeing on the importance. And then economically, we could we could agree that you know having extreme poverty doesn't necessarily support positive economics. I don't need to make that debate. Smart people have made it many times. It's why we have the world we have, um, you know. And when we come back to well, what's going to make me person support the economics? I have to find my value in you somewhere. I'm going to have to understand my the value you're providing as a business. And the thread became in kind. In kind just jumped to the top right away. It was something that every business could do without hitting their balance sheet hard. If they weren't cash rich, they were certainly gonna be able to find an hour. If they had an extra good on the shelf that they were otherwise gonna throw out, but there was nothing frankly wrong with it and they knew a place where they could donate it, they'll donate it. Why wouldn't they donate it? There's tax generally, not everywhere, but generally, there's a tax incentive to that or an accounting incentive because in kind of course, it's also an accounting standard. And so we traveled around the world in different places, virtually and physically, to try and understand what could work, what could help. Well, when someone's hungry, guess what? They need food. Well, who has food? The food producers, the growers, et cetera. Okay, donate the food. It's in kind. Good. You've got it. You, you deal with some hunger. When someone has a medical issue, who has the knowledge and the means? Well, drug companies and anybody who's expert in science in this specific area. That's a skill, that's a service, and that's a good. It works. If someone has you know, a problem they're trying to solve and they're not totally sure, but it's within an industry, well, if we could help bring together the industry players to solve it, you could get some ideas and maybe that'll solve it. And it just keeps going. And what ended up keep coming back was that concept, that accounting term of in-kind can actually thread many needles in a very beautiful way that actually travels. It, it drives the concept of expanded and inclusive giving, social impact, 
um, you know, different ways of systemically thinking. It drives it all forward in a very pre-existing kind of way. We're just reimagining the conversation through different narratives. And so it worked. It was a long example, I'm sorry, but it was a, it was a loaded question, Anna. <laughs> <laughs> if I lost anybody along the way, I'll, I'll you know, just call me. <laughs> so, <you know. laughs> no, that was perfect. There was a lot, there were a lot of golden nuggets in that, um, for sure. So one of the areas where the traditional trade and barter system fell apart was it, we weren't able, as we as a species, um, weren't able to figure out how to get it to scale. And so you're talking about this global movement, you're talking about in-kind donations. And so it's, it's a, an entire variety of all of the possible things that can be a variety. Mm -hmm. How are you managing how are you managing um, scale? Right. How are you? How are you able to get trade to scale? Mm. Trade is an interesting beast because it's it's not just one thing, right? There's laws that we have to deal with. There's um, supply chains that we have to have established in and amongst any given supply chain. I mean, imagine the apple growing on the tree at the orchard, getting to your house. It it will hit possibly several players and maybe just you because if you can go to the orchard you can get it um, and that's something that's proximate to you but if you have to travel far to actually go to that orchard where that apple's from um, you understand that there's probably a truck involved or some kind of vehicle and you know depending if it's coming out from another border into your border there might be some tariffs and there might be you know and it gets more complicated depending on how far you actually have to go to get the thing but um, all of that's beautifully thought through now because we have technology and I think that's that's fundamentally how we are able to reimagine things now. I mean, we're not, we're not looking at barter. Barter is a back and a forth. We're looking at a one directional contribution system. So moving a resource to meet a need, meaning that it's that resource is going to be consumed at that point. It might be that there's some leftovers that can then continue on the loop of passing the resource that's left then on to meet another need. And that's what we actually hope to see. Um, but we can do that now. And I think Ban Ki-moon made a point some, some years back now where he said, you know, this is the first time in, in human history that we actually have what we need to do something different. I'm, I'm brutalizing his quote, but, um, but that was the gist of it. And at least in any case, that's how I interpreted it. So I was like, great, I got Ban Ki-moon on my team. Let's go, um, <laughs> former, former UN Secretary General. But, uh, but, you know, if he sees it, I certainly see it because I'm a technologist. And so it's just a matter of setting up the systems to track the things and then having you know, delivery services, deliver them. Or if they're really close by, which is optimal, people giving to people. And it's it's just maybe not 30. So yeah, that's the, uh, it's easy. It's definitely easy and possible. You just need a place to understand what's needed and then a place to understand what you have. And we, we built that, so yeah. So we're gonna get to that technology system in a moment, but as you were talking, you've taken, entrepreneurship and you mentioned flipping it up on its head and so entrepreneurship to solve a problem is entrepreneurship fundamentally in a scarcity mindset yeah. you have to have a problem in order to have business to solve it however what you've done is you've taken entrepreneurship and flipped it on its head to a fundamentally abundant place of hey we have all this cool stuff we have all these cool people let's do cool things in business with all these cool things <laughs> and then not only that but through your life path, yeah, pardon me, I'm just fangirling out a little bit here because it's absolutely 
brilliant how you've done this. In your life path, you've had experience with a nonprofit that is fundamentally teaching people who are generally excluded how to look at the built environment around them. And not only that, but how to look at it and then how to build better, more inclusive environments. And we're gonna define better as more inclusive, more functional, more foundationally stable than the one that we have now. Um, And then you've just created a bunch of little, not system breakers, but system evolvers. What was that? Yeah, trim tabs. I've done a bunch of trim tabbing, as as Bucky Fuller would say. I've, I've, I've looked for the trim tab. That's amazing. So you you've addressed the people side with that. And then the stuff side, the the built stuff side, you've, you've created a technology platform you uh, and you facilitated the creation of a technology platform that allows us to move resources in a way that addresses the system that we currently have. Meanwhile, building the system that is radically inclusive is radically collaborative is all of these you know, radical, but in good ways, kinds of things that shouldn't be radical. They should just be everyday kind of stuff, but we're so far behind that's considered radical. No, this is teamwork. This is how we're built. Come on. So you've you've created, (laughs) you've created a technology platform that facilitates what we have and turning into literally anything that we can dream of as people who are ideally. I, I want you to fix. I mean, we have to understand, Anna, we are going to find happiness and joy in our lives by serving. And so how do we do that? Also balancing the requirement to put food on our tables, to you know, try and work together to build strong nations, strong communities, resilient, thoughtful, peaceful places. We have to start by service. It has to start by service. And we have oh. to make service accessible, right? We have what a to. horror. What, what, what horrors you speak of? Like, why is this even, why is this a problem? It's so ridiculous, but you know, it's a problem because of power dynamics and economic dynamics. I mean, if you let, if you let capitalism run long with scarcity mindsets and, you know, must maximize X at the cost of Y, like, of course. And when the cost of Y becomes completely imbalanced so that it's sinking whatever benefit you might get with X, which is where we're at now. I mean, the world is in a hot mess and it's unacceptable. Okay, fine. So let's not let's not shame it all. Let's just say, okay, they didn't know better, but we do. And if we know better and we have the better means and we have the way, why would we be so stupid as to not do it? And it is stupidity. It's willful ignorance not to do this. And we need people to think in new ways. We need to start with, how about we just say we have everything we need to solve our problems? Let's start there until we figure out we don't have something and then we'll ask a friend for it. But we do, we do have everything. We just have to put down the power dynamics for a minute and the egos and turn this into something that we can, we don't need to kumbaya. We just need to be systemic about it and understand that when the tide does rise all boats, when they all go up with the tide, we do all win. We will achieve a better state of things. And that might mean that we are, if someone can't afford a cleaner energy solution than the one that can afford 25, maybe they realize that they can share one and make a new client and make a new friend and enter into a new community. And it's not bad for business. It's not a loss. It's actually a strategic gain. 
maybe we need to shift around the way we strategize in business and in trade and globally. We will have to. The big nations that have lasted in their power positions for this long, they are changing their dynamic and they're going to and continuously need to rely on their other nation partners who are struggling. Well, if my partner is sinking and drowning and I need them, I have to lift them up. I got to save them. I have to throw them a lifeboat. But if I don't have the lifeboat in the color purple, that doesn't mean I can't help. It means I need to go find another kind of lifeboat, or maybe it's a vest or a raft or something slightly different in another color to still help them not drown. But drowning is not an option. It's not an option for humanity. We cannot, as a human species, drown. We're not going to self-annihilate. It'd be sheerly stupid. So when the bulk of us are starving, when the bulk of us are dealing with climate issues, when the bulk of us don't have clean water, when the bulk of us, then are we going to care? Then it's too late. Then it's too late. And we're reaching tipping points in certain parts of this world that are not acceptable because once they start to fall, hey, it's not long in the grand scheme of things till we do too. And I think this is where I sit and I say, okay, from the global trade perspective, I see all kinds of disaster. From the entrepreneurial perspective, I see all kinds of hope. And in the middle is where we need to meet. And so why not? Why not try something a little different? It's, it's not going to harm anybody. Why not try? And, and we have to keep harm always in mind. But that's not. <laughs> Beautifully stated. Absolutely. Rant number one for the day. <laughs> <laughs> but it's good. And you're, you're talking to, like, we've been raised in a fundamentally competitive mindset. It's a zero-sum game of there's only one winner, winner takes all. It doesn't make any sense. It's not why humans are good at different things, if you want to use that example, but it's fractals. I like it. Anna, hockey teams win as a team. They don't win because one goal scorer gets all the goals. They win as a team. I mean, let's pull out the Canadian the Canadian analogy. You win as a team, as a team. And maybe our team is just a couple billion people in size, right? <laughs> like, it's a one person pop. Uh, you just made my American heart very happy by throwing that in there. Thank you. That was such a bone. <laughs> so let's talk about this technology platform that you've built. Sure, 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 sure. So, I mean, it, again, team sport. Um, it's been a lot of thinkers and tinkerers working on this. We've had various iterations of it for so many years. Um, you know, and I remember meeting with early investors and they're like, so how do you make money? And I was like, stop, stop, stop. <laughs> you're asking the wrong question. The question is, how do I promote wealth sharing? Uh, and this is another story, but anyway, no, this is a minor detail. But look, it was understanding fundamentally the mechanics of the exchange. And we started with our experiments. We did the events. We actually did service work to understand the complexities of the exchanges we would need, of the coordination we would need. Um, you know, the goal for the platform, it's in a state now where we saw a whole lot of opportunity to get working with bigger groups of people. And so that's the pilot we've just been working through and are releasing kind of concurrently with this discussion. Um, but the simple mechanic is, is, is as easy as a wedding registry. So imagine like you getting married and you could ask for anything you wanted, uh, you know, what, what's the list? And it's time, services, goods, and skills that you can pick from. So those are the top line categories and then just go nuts, get specific and detailed as you can, go as long-winded as you want. You can have a thousand things on this thing. That's totally fine. But, you know, you're probably going to prioritize because you need a few things right now, but you can change it every day. You can change it every 10 minutes. It doesn't matter. Because the other thing that wasn't possible is real-time need is really hard to understand because there's nowhere to post it. Like, where do I say, hey, just had a flood in our basement and, you know, blew up everything, whatever. One organization doesn't have a place to share that. 
Twitter, Instagram, the social media feeds are incredibly noisy. Um, so why not have a special place just for that? So this allows them to not so much as explain the problem, although there's a space for them to do that, but just to ask for the resource, just ask for it. And, and you can indicate urgency and you can indicate recurrence and you can indicate where and how it can be given and the logistics, just the basic logistics, um, that can be all done. Then we bring the other side of the marketplace in, which is the donors or the contributors. And we are not saying they're people. We're not saying they're businesses. We're not saying they can't be other charities. We're saying they can be donors. Whoever they are, they can come as they are. And so that was first kind of inclusivity rule number one. Everybody can ask and everybody can come. Um, we are prioritizing in the design service organizations. And the reason being that these organizations know the nuances of their community. The smallest grassroots organization in Uganda understands what it needs and it will ask for what it needs. It's not up to big NGO, whatever, to say everybody around the world needs X. No, like literally the local hyperlocal context really does matter. And it's, it's difficult to meet needs at scale quickly if we're constantly overly simplifying them and decontextualizing them. They need to be contextualized. So, so we've allowed that to happen. So yesterday, for example, I was delighted to help onboard a Ugandan center that is a not-for-profit school that brings kindergarten up to grade three to Uganda. Believe it or not, that's actually something that's not readily available and it's, it's school and the school is being supported by an entire school board over here in Canada. And that's how we learned about it. And they need 50 gently used soccer jerseys. I'm sure there's a soccer team that hasn't needed to use their jerseys that could put them in a box and send them over and they'd be delighted to receive them like and they need them and why not why not why not maybe there's a town next to this town that actually has them because they've closed the program but you would never know if you can't ask so we make that possible and we we, we tackled it like a wedding registry on the other side you can offer so if you happen to be cleaning out your house and you say you know what i've got 16 books and i've got a gently used sofa and whatever, you as a donor can just proactively offer it. And then it's in there and it can be found. If someone needs something, they can search and they can find it. And then you coordinate together how you're gonna get the exchange done on your own time. And then you ask, you ask for confirmation that it's received. So it's really important. If I'm shipping something to Uganda, I really do wanna know that it's been received. And I think that's been one of the big barriers to in-kind giving is it's really hard to understand how it tracks and moves and that you can confirm that it got there. Cause if I'm giving something, I wanna know it made the difference. That's gonna make me wanna do it again. It's mm -hmm. gonna make me feel like I'm part of that community solving problems. So we help that to happen. And then we get a verification side as, as well done. Mapping, of course, everything. We just went real nerdy and included the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals. And so we mapped all of these little micro transactions, which are happening around us all the time, but we created a way to map them back to those SDGs. So when you know the UN says we've got these priorities to tackle you know, poverty, hunger, equality, whatever, what they forget to tell you is they're actually asking for the local organizations and people to do this. They, they got government to agree. So governments all over the world said, yeah, yeah, we're in, we're in, but like, hi, who's actually going to do the work? Not the government. I mean, like they'll do some, I'm sure, but that's not what's going to make the change. What's going to make the change is the people on the ground actually letting them know what the needs are. So you have a benchmark for data and then showing how it's 
being met and you can track these things if it's micro micro stuff anyway we've been working uh you know for a couple of years with UN World Data Forum you know participating in those discussions to try and show that grassroots is urgent and they know that they know that already that they, they kind of have to evolve but but yeah so that's what we're doing and that's the platform and anybody can join it's radically inclusive and any organization is welcome and as it goes uh, our goal is to have it actually free um, freely available or at low cost as possible, which is why it lives in a not-for-profit. And so if anybody loves this and they want to sponsor it, great. Um, we want to, we want to make this a public resource and a public utility basically. And, um, yeah, that's what we're up to. Very cool. So this is live up now. Live up now, working through some little bugs as with every bit of technology. I mean, we consumers broadly speaking tend to know the beautiful widget when it's been all polished up and sparkly and shiny we've been building with our community so we, we put it up now as i think yesterday there was a little bug but it's getting fixed and like you know it's constantly growing but yes up now yeah so where can where can we find it my 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 because it is yours my dot project in kind dot org and that link will also be in the description or show notes as as technology platforms allow for yeah, absolutely. absolutely. And, and, you know, of course, if anybody finds a little bug or they have an idea of how we could make it better, um, we really have built this with our community involved and with the broader community involved. So I love having feedback and ideas and, you know, not nasty, don't be mean, like we're trying to be productive here, abundant, kind. Uh, but, you know, if there's ways we can make things better, great. We want to know. So you've created Project Unkind, which is a technology platform that's beautiful, mind the way by the way, because radical inclusivity happens to have a fair amount to say with user interface and UX design, which I love that you know, because you come from a technology back. Oh my God, so cool. Um, so you've created a digital place to ask, a place to for needs, a place to communicate um, with foundational radical inclusivity, especially for donors as well, which is normally just the way that we've looked at it is in this little box of like, you have to have a lot of money to be able to donate to charity, but that's not true. You're breaking open that mindset, which is amazing. And then that's not enough. So you've also created in the same platform, a place to give, and then also a place to coordinate things. And then you get to confirm it all. And you get to take part in the global movement because you've, for the most part, automated measuring things against the UNS 17 SDGs, which is not just for developing nations, it's for all nations. And you can actually leverage it in your business in some really beautiful ways because all of these things, oh my gosh. Uh, we're gonna talk more about that later though. Uh, so we have an event coming up with a special announcement on March 17th, where um, I'm here in the mountain region of the United States. So it's gonna be from 5.30 to seven where we have a special announcement coming up and we get to talk more with the wonderful Miss Tanya Woods. So please bring all of your questions and uh, we will talk about how you can use the 17 SDGs in your business and to create impact and do amazing things in the world. <laughs> Anna, just thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. Uh, you know, it takes, takes a village and our village is growing nice and big. So thank you, Anna, for having me join you today and spend time with you. I always enjoy that. And uh, thanks for sharing out our message. You know, there's lots to learn. We've got lots of resources on the website. So projectinkind.org um, has all kinds of resources, case studies. You can learn what we saw in COVID. Uh, it's all public and available and free. It's very important to us. So, uh, you know, learn away. But Anna, you know, really, truly grateful for your support always. So thanks. 
always indeed radical collaborators unite go girl <laughs>